praise you because you are a supernatural, powerful God, because there is nothing that you cannot do because you are the God of the impossible and that, and that you are a rewarder of those who seek you, that those who come to you must believe that you are and that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. Hebrews tells us that, Lord God, and we're just so grateful that you do reward those of us who seek you with finding you, Lord. We find you in all of your glory. We find your peace and your joy and your kindness and your faithfulness, and we find everything we need. We find healing for our soul and power and we find everything that we need to live this life for your glory, and I'm so grateful for that, Lord. And we want to pray. We, we won't list everybody by name, Lord, but there are people here in this room today who need, who need you, who need to experience who you are. And uh, we all do, Lord, but some of us more markedly than others. And so we pray for those people amongst us, Lord, who need to know your touch and who need you to be the powerful supernatural God that you are. And I, so I pray that you open our eyes today as we go through your word. I pray that those who are not here for reasons that uh, are causing them distress, Lord, that you would um, remind those that you are there with them, that, um, that they go with you by your spirit. And so um, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that we belong to a God who is almighty, omniscient, unchanging God. And we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, okay, this is the first of a new study called Knowing Peace in a Shaking World. Um, I believe it's essential for us to come to know peace, uh, to know what that peace is, really, and to know how to live in it. Uh, we live in difficult times, times of growing stress. We've been talking about that for weeks and weeks, months and months. Um, we live in times where we can see really clearly that our world, our culture, is hurtling into an abyss that is, um, is, it seems to be growing ever wider as we get closer to it. And um, uh, the, all of society is in confusion and chaos um, it's almost unbelievable to me. I can have conversations at home, uh, political conversations with friends and family, and, and people seem to have no idea of what is going on in the world. They have no idea how the whole world is crumbling and the times in which they live, and uh, that's a scary thing, really. Um, I think there was a... I don't know if it was Himmler or Hitler who, who coined the German word propaganda... And, um, and I don't know what the German word for propaganda is, but it's something like that. And they, what they said was, if you tell a lie big enough, everyone will believe it. And that's where we are today. Hmm? Goebbels, thank you. Goebbels. If you tell a lie big enough, everyone will believe it. And that's where we are today. We are being told lies so huge, but people are believing them by their hundreds of thousands. And um, it's almost impossible, really, to believe that someone would so shamelessly distort the truth. But it's happening all over the place. All over the place. And so, um, and that's, of course, the... I love that. What's that ring? <laughs> it's that whistle. I just love that, yeah. Technology, Technology yeah, exactly. Um, and I think really we do need to, I think that honestly it's not too much, uh, it's not too 
imaginative or flamboyant or too ridiculous to say that the enemy of our souls is bent on the destruction of the human race. That is the fact, that Satan is determined to destroy the human race in whatever way he can. And we are actually seeing that happen in front of our eyes. Um, So uh, he's determined to destroy the human race and he will start with... um, the people of God. He will start with the church, with Israel, um, uh, and and then go on to the destruction of the planet that we live on. Um, I, honestly, I, I can't say that enough. I'm saying it in a very calm voice, but I really want to scream it out. I want to scream. You know, we are not we are not living in the days we were born in. We're not. The days have changed, and the times are getting worse. And we have to be aware of that every moment counts. You know, you can just carry on, can't you? And do your own thing. You know, you can... So whatever's going on in your life, whatever has gone on, whatever is going on, whatever may go on next week, is actually, no matter how bad and how hard and how terrible and how all-consuming, it is actually a secondary thing to the reality of why you're here. You're here to make a difference in these days. And, yeah, and I think that we really need to remember it. Um, Jesus warned us of these days. He told us what would come throughout the end of the Gospels as he was preparing his disciples. He told them what would come, Matthew 24, 25, uh, and the corresponding chapters in Luke. Uh, Paul picked that up. Jude talks about it. Uh, Luke writes the book of Acts and includes details of that. Peter writes about it. Every New Testament writer talks about the times that we live in. The Old Testament prophesies of it. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, they all, Joel, they talk about the days that we live in now. The whole Bible talks about it. And um, so the questions really we need to ask ourselves is, do we know the truth of Scripture? I know that most of you do. I know you've been coming here week after week, so I know that you are at least trying to know the truths of Scripture. But the question is, do we know them? Because I was thinking about my son as I was driving here, and I was thinking about the fact that when he was 15 or 16, I, used to, I was teaching the book of Daniel at the time, and um, he used to listen to me talk about Daniel. And a couple of the times when he came back from university, later on, I was teaching Daniel again, and he came back and he listened in the classroom, and he answered every question. He knew who Daniel was. He knew what he was doing. He knew everything about Daniel, but he did not believe. So you can know Scripture you can, that's what I'm trying to say. You can know the scripture. You can know that Ezekiel prophesied about the war of Gog and Magog and that we are on the doorstep of that war. But you can know it in your head and it make no difference to you at all. Yes. Satan knows the truth of scripture, but he doesn't believe. So we have to move from just knowing the truth that we're looking at here. I mean, how many years have we been studying the truth? Wendy, you and I, we've been looking at the truth for, what, 15 years? Maybe not quite, but almost. Yeah, well over 10 years. We've been inductively, in-depth, hello Christian, talking and looking at the scriptures. But if we don't believe them, they're meaningless. 
And if you don't believe that God is a supernatural, all-powerful God and that he has made us victorious in Christ Jesus, that there's nothing that can happen to us outside of his sovereign control, that he has put us into 2017 for a particular reason. If you don't believe that, you don't actually believe God and you shortchange him. He is an all-powerful, supernatural God. And he has, he has deliberately and specifically put you and I here for such a time as this. I, can't, I, I know you hear me say, <laughs> you must get so tired of it. Because sometimes I just think, oh, I'm sure I said this last week. Or maybe it was even five minutes ago. I don't know. But it is so important. You look at yourself and you think that you are not important. That's the problem with us. We look at ourselves and think that we are nobodies. But you've got to stop thinking about yourself that way. I'm 65 years old. I hate being 65. Do you know what? No, you, you know what I mean. I mean, I'd rather be 55 or 45. But I'm 65, and that's where I am. And God doesn't care how old I am. And he doesn't care that I'm a woman in a man's profession. He doesn't care about those things. He doesn't care who you are, what you're like, how old you are, how frail you are, how weak you are, what your personal situation is. He doesn't care because he is an all-powerful, supernatural, omnipresent God. And he will do anything through you if you just say yes to God, if you would just say yes to God. Oh, I can't tell you. I can't tell you how I can imagine what we could do as a group of believers. What we could do, well, we're not us, but what God could do through us. So, do you live in the truth of Scripture? A, do you know the Scripture? And then, do you live in the truth of it? That means, do you really believe it and, and align yourself with it and every part of your life be uh, along that track? Is that what you do? And if you do, do you know peace? Because God promises that if you align yourself with his will, if you live according to the way he wants you to live, you will know peace. Why? Because the God who is peace will be with you. So how can we, A, find that peace? How can we hold on to that peace in a world that's shaking? How can we live the life of faith and live it in power and live it with joy and live it with peace and live it with all of that in a time where the whole world is shaking underneath our feet? So um, I wanted to begin in Hebrews because um, the writer to the Hebrews actually uh, writes to, um, well, it, it depends uh, which uh, commentators you read. I think that the writer to the Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians and to the nation of Israel. His letter is supposed to be read in the temple and passed around. So it's not just to Hebrew believers, which were the church in those days. It's not just to the, the Jewish Christians. It is also to the Jews who have not yet believed. And what the, he the writer to the Hebrews knows is that Jerusalem and the temple is going to be destroyed any time now. And so he's writing, if you like, to the people of God, saying that the world that they're standing on, the ground that they're standing on, is about to be exploded. It's about to be destroyed. And he's calling to them, both Christian and non-believing Jew alike, and he's saying to them, consider Jesus, 
Look at Jesus. Don't look at the circumstances of your life. Don't put your trust in anything else. Just look to Jesus. Um, he, um, he make, as I say, he make not. It's not a lot of people who think that it's, he's writing to um, Israel as well. So I'm, I'm, I could be wrong, of course, but I think he is writing to Israel as well, and he's saying, "You're just about to be obliterated. You're just about to be completely destroyed." The Romans will come in a few years after this letter and they will completely destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Um, there's loads of Christians there who are in danger of backsliding. They are in danger of falling uh, away from the um, practices of their Christian faith because it's becoming so hard to be a Christian in Israel and in Jerusalem. They are being persecuted. They can't work. There's all sorts of things going on. And so... So you have the Christian Jews who are some of whom uh, wanting to fall away. And then you have the non-believing Jews who think that they're persecuting the Christians and actually they're just about to be obliterated um, themselves. So it's a very interesting letter, actually. As you read through it, it's very interesting because it's appealing to, if you like, the whole world. <laughs> if you know what I mean. If you take the truth of Hebrews and that God is writing to believers and unbelieving Jews at the same time and you transfer that to 2017, 2018 and you can say God is writing to believers and unbelievers at the same time. Why? Because your world is just about to explode. The people, their lives Who's? Who? Which people? Where are you? Um, you might be. So if you just tell me, Juliet. You may not be, but I want a reference. So. Oh, I, okay, okay. Well, um, mm, that's a difficult one actually, they, because they've had, they've seen Christ and He's been crucified and. Um, and hmm. Of what? What are we talking about? You're talking about that the Jewish people were evil. In what way? I'm talking about this is before Christ. Right. You have. You've got you've got several things just a little bit mixed up, Juliet, so we'll talk a bit later. No, don't be sorry, that's fine. That's fine. It's good. It's good. Yeah, so we but we'll talk later about it, you can tell me. So um this letter then is writing its encouragement and its warning to the people who will read it. And it's important, to, I think it's really important to us because he's not just writing to unbelievers, he's writing to believing Christians and he's warning them, this is possible for you if you don't make sure that you understand who you are in Christ and um, who he is. And it really asks the question of us because we, have, we be belong to a church that is much like, uh, is becoming apathetic and is um, lukewarm at the very least. And, and what the writer to the Hebrews asks these Jews, believers and, be un and unbelievers, is what is it that you trust? What are you putting your trust in? And 
Are you trusting the word of God or are you trusting the, wor- the world and all of its things that are about to be shaken and fall away? The temple's still standing, so there's a lot of talk about what um, the, uh, the sacrifices are, um, but things were changing. If you go to uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and uh, which I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Hebrews 12, verse 25 to 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Um, And then if you go to Luke 21 because we just want to cross-reference some of this. Luke 21, verse 20 to 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which were written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. You could effectively say that that began in AD 70 and finished in 1948. That time of the Jerusalem being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles happened between AD 70 and uh, 1948 until the Jews went back into Jerusalem and into their own land. Now, um, I'm not saying that Jesus isn't talking also about a time at the very end, but here he's talking about this destruction of Jerusalem that the writer to the Hebrews is writing just before and saying you know, this is what's going to happen. You can cross-reference it with Matthew 24, verse 15 to 22. And um, basically what Jesus is saying in Luke and in Matthew and the writer to the Hebrews is is saying is, God has and he will again shake the very ground under our feet. And that is the message of the Bible. He has and he will again shake the ground under our feet. Um, When you get into Revelation, um, those of us who've studied Revelation together, you get into Revelation 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. And you have people in Revelation 6, when one of the first seals are open, men hide in caves because the rocks are falling on them and they know that it's God. They say, let us hide ourselves from the wrath of God and of the Lamb. So when this happens, this time that we're very close to, when that happens, make no mistake, people will know that it is God. They'll know that it's God. And here, when the writer to the Hebrews wrote, he is quoting things that Jesus has already said to them. And he's trying to let them know when God speaks, 
and says something's going to happen, you can put your life on the fact that it will happen. It will happen. Now, I suppose that's where I came in with, you know. You can read the scriptures. You can know the truth of scripture. You can read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You can read the letters of Paul. You can read all of that. You can read the Psalms and find nice help in them when you need them. But if you don't live your life as if what God says will happen, will happen, you are seriously deluded. Seriously deluded. And it is not enough anymore. It's just not enough to be living for ourselves. It's not enough to be thinking about our families and our grandchildren or our children and our job and our this and our that. That's not enough. Because we've been put here now. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we could have been born 50 years ago. Or, no, we were. So 100 years ago. We could have been born 100 years ago. And this time not be our time. But God made you specifically for now. Now that just that should make us think. Okay, what what then? What am I supposed to do with that information? How am I supposed to live in light of the fact that God doesn't make any mistakes? He made me for now. He made you, Kim, for now. What are we going to do with that? So, um, the writer to the Hebrews, as I say, he wanted people to have their feet on the solid foundation of faith. He wanted them to know that they had a rock that was immovable that they could stand on. That though the ground would shake underneath them, their rock would stand firm. And really that's what we need. What are we standing on? What are we counting on? And will it actually save you? You know... We are. I'm not talking about just generally us. I'm talking about the world in, in, in general. What, when we look at our churches, Sue, when we look at our churches, what are we basing our... Uh, solid, what is our solid ground? What is the solid ground on which we stand? What's that song? You know, the, All other things are sinking sand. That's what I mean. Um, God is going to shake society. He's going to shake the church. He is shaking the church. He is. And, um, and people are, are falling away. They are falling away. Um, and we have to uh, put our confidence in God. Hebrews 13, verse 9. Um, well, actually, we'll start in um, verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Um, not by foods, because he's going to go on to talk about foods. Do not be carried away by strange and varied teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. This is a key message of um, Hebrews. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God's word is steadfast. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. And we have a hope that is an anchor for our soul, which is Hebrews 6, verse 19. We have a hope. Christ saves forever and completely those who have come to God through faith in him. That's Hebrews 7, verse 25. All through Hebrews is the teaching, is the fact that only Christ is your foundation. Only Christ. Anything else is sinking sand. 
your church programs, your um, events, your um, uh, ten-step programs, that is all sinking sand. The only one who is sure and strong and able to save you is Jesus Christ. And I'm not just talking about the finalists. Sue was right. She said, well, we are saved if we're Christians. Yes, we are. But there are many, many Christians who are wobbling about all over the place because they are not standing on the truth of what this says and they're not standing on the strength and the power of God. And that's where we must be. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 verse um, 10 to 16 um, well, we'll go back to verse 8. Um, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. I just want to stop there. <laughs> I want to stop there. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's you and me. We have been called for an inheritance. And we don't really quite know where we're going, but we're going. And he went out every step of the way, trusting his God. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Can you see what the writer to the Hebrews does? He talks about a human being called Abraham being called to a real physical place on the planet, which he didn't know. And then he turns in these verses, he moves that from a physical movement of physical people to the people of God, which is you and I, on a journey for a city that is to come. That's what he's doing in this. He's trying to get the right the people that read this letter to understand you are part of a spiritual dimension that you cannot see. You are part of an army that is moving towards a city, an inheritance that is yours, but you don't quite understand. You are part of the people of God and he will work through you and do unbelievable things through you if you say yes to him if you refuse to look back. That's what he's saying here, isn't it? They could have turned around. They could have gone back, but they kept on going. I don't know how God's going to use you individually, but I know how he could use this ministry. I know how he could do that. I know that we could flood the streets of Sarancester. We could be out there giving the gospel all around the place. We could be training people up. We could be... Um, being a place where people who are suffering can come to and know that here is a place where real people know a real God. We could be that place. 
We could be that place. We could be a place that just says we don't need any of the trappings of anything. We just need Christ and him crucified. That's what we need. Do you see what I mean? And I'm not saying it's only this place. I'm not trying to do anybody's church down. Some of you go to great churches. It's not about that. It's about you and me deciding. God is great. He is powerful. He will save and he will do it through old crocs like you and me. (laughs) He will. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. He will. It's just a question. Sorry, Julie, you're not an old croc, I know. But, and some of others as well. You're not all old crocs, just me. So he will do it. It's just a question of saying yes. Yes. I will not look back to where I've come from. I won't look back to what has been happening just recently or further away. I won't look back. I will look on forward and I will walk on with God. And I will be used by him for his glory. Um, I, I know that God wants us to let go of the things of this world. That's why Hebrews is such a great book for us now. He wants us to let go of the things of this world. Whatever it is that you're holding on to, let go of that. Let go of it. Mm. Let go of it. And just move on with the Lord. He wants to be, he wants us to center our attention on the world to come. Not on the world that is, but on the one that is to come. Now, there's a saying that you can be so heavenly focused that you're no earthly good. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being so heavenly focused that everything you do here is about there. Everything you do, you do from the basis of seeing where you're going, seeing what it is that God wants us here for. Um, You know, there's things I don't understand. I just don't understand. I don't understand why Laura, you know, Vanessa's daughter, I do not understand why her tumour is growing. I don't understand that. She is a girl sold out for the Lord. I mean, if if you knew her, you would want every one of your children to be like her. You know, I'm, she's obviously, she's still human, so I'm sure she's got stuff I don't know about. But do you know what I mean? She is a lovely girl sold out for the Lord, and yet she is facing this situation. I don't understand that. But nonetheless, I know God does. And so every part of what I say to her is about that. I don't understand that. I pray for your healing every day, physical healing, but I know God has a plan in this and he has a purpose in this. That's what I'm talking about. Take your eyes off this and put it on there. Rosie's daughter, Mandy, every time I talk about Laura, I I remember to talk about Mandy, who had MS. MS, imagine your daughter having MS. It's hardly bearable, is it? You want to take it on for yourself. You want to use to have it rather than your children. I don't have an answer for that. Mandy loves the Lord. She's a Christian. Why is that happening? I don't know. But it is. So what do we do? We have to keep focusing our attention on the fact that God knows. God knows. He knows. He is at work. And he has promised that he causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the stone, the rock that we stand on. And if we don't stand on it, who will? If we don't do that, who will? We must do that. And we must present to the world the rock on which we stand.
um, Hebrews 12 gives us an encouragement. After this wonderful, um, we haven't read all of Hebrews 11. I wish we could, but we don't have the time. But um, uh, well, I'm actually I'll read one more verse, verse 26. Um, no, I've got to go back to 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be the called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Can you see that that verse? You know, and of course that's about Moses, who when he grew up. When he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But I want to say to you, I don't know how old you are, but have you grown up yet? Have you grown up yet? Because now's the time to say, I don't want to be the child of a human parent. I don't want to be Pharaoh's child. I want to be, or the daughter, you know, the daughter of Pharaoh's child. I want to be a person of Christ. I want God to be known to be my father. Do you see what it says? It's just a little tiny verse. When he had grown up by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I want us all to refuse to be called the children of this world. Let's be called the children of God. Let's be seen to be the children of God all the time, every moment. Wow, she's really weird. That Christian, he is so odd. I mean, he never talks, stops talking about Jesus. He never stops warning people. He never stops organizing his life so that he is in a place at the time to do something for and with the Lord. Will you organize your days like that? Moses, what does it say? Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considered the reproach of Christ, the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's our choice always. You, you, we're being offered the reproach of Christ. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's Hebrews 12, uh, 11, Hebrews 11, 26. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Now, this is not the blessings of Christ. This is the reproach of Christ. And what, what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is, even the horrible stuff, even the persecution, he considered better than the riches of the nation that he came from. I would say it's part of it, yeah, part of it. The reproach of Christ could be scorn or ridicule or um, ostracizing or not being able to work, because that's what's going on in Hebrews. They're not being able to work. They can't live anywhere. They're being kicked out of their family homes because they've come to the Lord Jesus. This is real, what we would call excommunication. No, this not, no. Moses chose to endure ill treatment with the people, with the people of God than to con enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So there's a direct comparison here. I'm not saying that he doesn't talk about discipline, but he doesn't do it in Hebrews 11. Oh. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Very similar. Yes. Very similar. Mm. Mm. Oh, right. Mm. And that was just so amazing mm. because there were people there from India and all the Nigerian Christians yeah. who are under the yeah. terrible persecution. Yeah. And yet they're rejoicing in the Lord. Yeah. Rejoicing in the Lord. Yeah. Being considered worthy. Yes. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Exactly. It is, but you're, but you, I know what you're saying. So you're, yeah, that's that's right. So when you say the reproach yeah. you mean mm. I do. I mean that. Yeah. 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 Um, and the thing is, because what you're saying is matching with what what, what I'm saying this morning. Yeah. That yeah. we. I mean, look, at, I just, I've just noticed that. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up. I mean, grow up. That's what I want to say. We've got to grow up. We've been baby Christians for too long. We need to grow up and stand up and know what we, on what we stand and be prepared to fight for what we believe. And, and so, um, so Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12. Um, begins with an instruction and an encouragement how we are to live, uh, how they were then and how we are today. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and so I think you could probably say the Indians and the uh, Christians, Nigerians from, you know, he's talking about dead people that have gone in Hebrews. He's talking about the, the people who have gone before because he's, he's mentioning Gideon and Barak and, and women who receive back their dead and um, people who chose death rather than, rather than life. Um, and then he gets to chapter 12 and he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the instruction. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Understand that life may not be easy, but keep looking to him. Keep looking to him. Lay aside the sin that so easily entangles. Lay aside every encumbrance. What encumbrances are you still carrying? You know, it may not be sin. He separates the sin that so easily entangles and the encumbrances. What are the encumbrances of your life? What are they that you're still holding on to that you won't let go of? You know, and you have them. I have them. I have encumbrances in my life. If I look at my life and I'm honest about it, I'll tell you that I have them. So we all have them. And what he's saying is lay aside the encumbrances. You cannot run a race carrying a heavy bag on your back. You just can't do it. And then he tells you the reason why, actually. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, he starts with, this is the instruction and the encouragement. And then you get to the end of the chapter and you, he tells you why. Verse 18, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. You know, he's talking about when Moses went up on the mountain to God, that mountain was 
was ablaze with fire and it was thunder. And, and people who heard the voice of God said, no, no, we don't want to hear it. You go up to Moses because they didn't want to hear that voice for they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. And then the writer makes this uh, a contrast. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape and turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only this earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I know that I read those verses before, but I want to read them again and again and again. We have not come to a heaven, uh, to an earthly mountain. We have come to Mount Zion, to a city that cannot be shaken. We have come with all of the saints that have gone before to the mountain of God and, and, and to this Jesus who is the mediator of this new covenant. Can you see what he's doing? He's trying to get them to see you don't belong here, you belong there. You don't belong here. All the stuff that happens here, hard as it is, and let's no, make, make no mistake, it is hard. The, the life that we have to live here is often very, very hard, but this is not home. This is not home. There is home. So we have to keep our eyes on where we're going. Otherwise, we will get so shaken up and so mixed up and so overwhelmed by what is happening here. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He has brought us into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But how can I do that? That's the question. How do I do that? How do you do that? When, what is it, the sea billows roll, roar, how do you do it when you have to live in the midst of a, uh, a life that is up and down and in a body that is not able always to withstand? How do we do that? Hmm? Yeah, yeah. And that's what this course is about. It's about how do we live in a shaking world and know peace. Not just know um, that God offers it, but really experience it. The word know in scripture means experience. Experience peace. How can we experience peace so that we really are unafraid, unafraid of whatever may happen tomorrow? Because we are so sure that the God who created all things, who is the beginner and the finisher of all things, has us in his hand. Because when you're sure of that, you are not afraid. Um, 
before, just before we take a break, well, we'll go on to it when we uh, after the break. I want to read John chapter 6. We've sort of finished in Hebrews for a while. So John 6. Um, because there's an episode in the life of Jesus that is found in... Uh, in uh, three of the Gospels. It's found in John 6, Matthew 14, and Mark chapter 6. Only Luke doesn't record it. And um, it's a really interesting chapter, chapter 6. We're only going to read the first 35 verses. The whole chapter is really interesting. Um, So John chapter 6, verse 1 to 35. John 6, 1 through 35. Actually, I might let some couple of people read it. So John 6, 1 to 14, please. Could someone read those? Near to the place 
where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has sent his seed. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do, so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to him, This is the work of God. Do you believe in him whom he has sent? So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Thank you. Just one more, Barbara, 35. Thank you. Now, I know you know these, you know this chapter. I know you know this chapter. But why did John write his gospel? What's the reason that John wrote his gospel? Yeah, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 tells you there were many other signs that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, but these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life in his name. John 20, 30 to 31. So what does that mean exactly? I mean, he says, I'm writing this gospel. He says there were many other signs that Jesus did, but these have been written. These particular signs have been written so that you might believe what? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, believing, you might have life in his name. So John writes his whole gospel, and he writes it in specific order, so that you and I would not only believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but that in that believing, we might have life. What sort of life? What else? Eternal life. What is eternal life? Abundant life. What is that? Everlasting. What else? What is the sort of life that we have in his name? Hmm? Being with Christ. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, what does it mean to me? What does it mean actually? What's the result to me? That I might have life 
in his name. What did Christ have? What sort of life did he have? He had a joyful life. He had a peaceful life. He had a blessed life. He had a self-controlled life. He had a faithful life. He had all of those things. And that's the life that John wants me to have in his name. Not just that I will believe that Jesus is the Christ, which will bring me salvation, which will give me the ticket to heaven, but that I will have life in his name, the life of Christ in me through his spirit. Now, I'm interested in that because I'm interested that John says there were so many other signs I could have written down. And actually, a bit later, in, in right at the end of his gospel, he'll say, I'm sure if we wrote all the signs down that Jesus did, they would, the, it would fill the whole earth. So he picked these signs. And in John chapter 6, he picked feeding the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And he put them together. What has the feeding the 5,000 got to do with a storm in a boat and Jesus walking on water? That's what I want to know, because in there is something about me having life in Jesus' name. You think that's a bit of a stretch, don't you? But you shouldn't, because John says he wrote this gospel. He chose these signs, and he wrote them in the way he wrote them so that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we would have this life in his name, the life that will give me peace and joy and faithfulness and self-control and, and, and all the wonders of this life. That's what we're going to get to, Kim. Well, no, we're going to get to it. We're going to really pull them apart. So I want to ask you a question. What is the connection between hunger and wind? Hunger is internal, wind is external. That's one. Was the, it, one, hunger is internal and wind is external. It's a connection, but not the one on the card. So what's, what's the connection between hunger and wind? In this, take from exactly what he said. What is the connection between the hunger of those people and the wind? Why do we need Jesus, for example? So, yeah, no, let's, we won't make it too spiritual. Yeah. We won't make it too spiritual yet. We'll get to the spiritual bit. What's the... Hey? Digestion. <laughs> Digestion. Yes, yes. Thank you, Yeah. Yes, yes. Because the man knows Jesus Yeah, the true. Both of them can kill you. Both of them can kill you. You can be killed by hunger if you don't get anything to eat. And you can be killed in a boat on the sea that is raging in a storm if the wind is too strong because you will drown. Both of them can kill you. No. No. Well, you should have done. Why wouldn't you? If you were hungry and nobody was there to give you food, you would die of starvation. If you were in a boat and it was pouring with rain, you would be fine. But if you are in a boat and it is pouring with rain and the wind is blowing, your boat will eventually capsize and you will die. Now, I know you think it's a bit of a stretch, but that's the stretch we're going to. Because what John has done is told us these two miracles in the same chapter. And what I want to say is the, the fact of Jesus walking on water is not talked about anywhere, you know, apart from these few verses in John chapter 6. John doesn't go on and explain why did Jesus walk on water. 
He doesn't do any of that because he wants us to make a connection between hunger and wind. He wants us to make the connection. Who is this Jesus in whom I must believe? And what is this life that he offers me? What will it be like? How might the connection between hunger and wind cause me to believe in Jesus? Because that's why John wrote his gospel. Yeah. Go back a little... No, become even more basic, Juliet. Why might the description of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on the water, why that might, might that cause me to believe in Jesus? Because that's why he wrote. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. He fixed it. He fixed it. He fixed the two things that could kill me. He fixed the hunger and he fixed the wind. I know it's really basic, but I, John says he writes this down that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. So, and he writes a, at great length about the feeding of the 5,000 and only a tiny bit about the walking on the water. So... Oh, yeah, he's writing later. No, he's writing much later. John's Gospel is written after all of the others. So he, he, yeah, he, yes, he knew. Okay, how does this explain the type of life I might have in Christ? We're only asking the questions. We're going to answer them after the break. But just how does it explain the type of life that I might have as a believer in Christ? Because that's why John wrote the Gospel. Yes, a life of faith. Well, what, what, what is, what is the life of faith? I mean, it's actually he doesn't talk about faith. He says, he says he wrote these down that I might believe, and and basically he's saying that what Jesus did was he filled the need of hunger and he saved them from a sinking boat or from a boat. So why might that cause me to believe in Jesus? Exactly, because Jesus can save me from death. That's the reason he's put these two things in, because he can save me from death, from hunger. He can fill my need. That's what Jesus will say at the end of chapter, 30, uh, chapter 6, verse 35. He'll say, he who comes to me will never hunger or thirst. And what the other thing is, how can I apply that knowledge to my everyday life? Yes. Yes, every day. See, what John is saying is, if hunger is about to kill you, you can be saved by someone who can give you bread. And if you're in a boat about to die in the sea, you can be saved by someone who can walk on water. See what I mean? So what was the purpose of his gospel? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, you might have life in his name not death. Now, I know that you think it's all a bit fanciful at the moment, so we're going to have a cup of coffee and then we'll come back. So, Father, thank you that um, thank you that we can know you're here, Lord. Thank you that you will explain to us the things that we don't quite get. Thank you that you are a God who wants to be known. Thank you that your word is truth, that it's strong, that we can stand on it, that it 
we can wrap it around ourselves, we can buckle up this belt of truth, we can know, Lord God, that, that we are reading the very words of God and it's just amazing, Lord, amazing to us. It's just so wonderful. So I, I pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom and the understanding and the insight to, to be able to use these words, to know what it is you're saying and that we might ad- apply them to our own lives, Lord God, so that we are people of the book, that we are people who go out in the truth of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so John tells us in chapter 6 that uh, Jesus takes these five loaves and a few fish, gives thanks to God, and then feeds 5,000 people with, with them. That's the story of John chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 15. But the ultimate point of that miracle is not to show him as someone who could create something out of nothing. That's not the ultimate point. Because, um, and although you, I could, you know, we could sit and talk about that forever, couldn't we? God can create something out of nothing. He can make this, he can make that. He can have 12 baskets left over and all of that. You know. But that's not the point. What is the point of those 15 verses? What's the point of that miracle? He is the bread of life. It's not what he gives, it's who he is, who he is. Um, and what, what do you know that the people understood of that? I mean, what happens in verse 15 of chapter 6? What do they want to do? They want to make him king. They want to make him their king. Why? Exactly, he's powerful, but they want what he can give them. Do you see what I mean? He he says they wanted to make him king, and he says, you're not seeking after me. Later in the chapter, you're not seeking after me because of anything else, but simply because I gave you bread when you were hungry. So what they're looking for is what he can give them. That is the gospel we preach all the time. We preach a gospel that says, come to Jesus. He will give you everything you need when you need it. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is not what John is writing about. He's saying that this Jesus is the one you come to if he never gave you anything. Because he is the bread of life. Because he is the one who will sustain you. He won't give you separately to himself. Yes, exactly. He won't give you something separate to himself. He'll give you himself. You know, it's all over scripture. We started with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Um, He who comes to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. What does he reward you with? Himself. It's true. It is the same thing, Barbara. It is. But if you come to him for health or wealth or success or happiness, you're coming to God for things he can give you rather than coming to God for who he is. And it's such a subtle distinction. Such a subtle distinction. But if we preach a gospel about the thing, Jesus can make your life great. Yes. And, and certainly he can, he does. But that's not the purpose. 
the purpose is that he will give you life because he will give you himself. Um, okay, so um, why did Jesus come into the world then? Just take it one step further. Yeah, but think about the bread. He, he didn't come in to give you bread. What did he come in the, into the world to do? To be bread. He came into the world to be bread. That's the thing. Not to give bread, not to show what bread is, but to actually be bread. Now, what does that mean to us? Yes. He sustains us. We can't live without it. But, but, but think about it. Jesus is not giving bread. He is bread. He is bread. You can't live without him. You can't live without him. No, don't say sorry, Barbara. That's brilliant because loads of people don't get to that place. We cannot live without Christ. It's Christ we need. Now take that by extension. Knowing peace in a shaking world. That's what this title is. Experiencing peace in a shaking world. How will you experience peace? If you experience Christ. Christ is peace. He doesn't give peace. He is peace. He is, he is bread. Exactly. Well, tell me, how does he feed you then? Take that a step further. How does Jesus feed you? Because that's a really good thing. Okay, but but how, well, how does he feed you? Actually, even go further. Go in. Yeah. Yeah. How? Yeah. He gives you himself. It's like he gives you pieces of himself. I don't want to, you know, it's like you're eating Christ. And at the end of chapter 6, that's what he's going to say. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And the Catholics have changed that. The parts of the church have changed that to mean that he's talking about the communion. He isn't. He's saying, I'm not going to give you something. I'm going to give you myself. You have to feast on me. I am the food. I am the treasure. I am the water. I am everything. Do you see what I mean? So it's like you can't have peace or joy or satisfaction or feeding for your soul. You can't have it without Christ. He is the one who is those things. Now, if you can't have it without Christ, what does that mean? I know that's a bit of a weird question. Yeah, it's not worth having, yeah, but... When Christ gives you... I mean, when Christ says, feast on me, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. When he says, feast on me, what does he mean, actually? If you... Right, yeah. Yeah. Right, but so t uh, think about it. What do you need from Christ? Peace, joy, yes, spiritually. You're never hungry, or yeah, because some people certainly are physically hungry, even if they know the Lord. But tell me, what does he mean? What he means is if you eat Christ, if you drink his blood and eat his flesh, I mean, this is graphic, but if you do that, what are you going to pick? I'll have this finger because this is peace. Yes, but um, well, this is what I'm getting at, Julia. Are you going to have, I'll have the right hand because that'll be peace. But I just want to leave the self-control on the foot. Do you know what I mean? I won't eat that yet. 
in his fullness. If you eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ, you can't pick and choose which bits you want. You're going to have all of him because he is going to take over. His, his flesh, his blood is going to run through your veins and your capillaries and every part of your body. Do you see what I mean? I know that that's a little bit graphic, but what I'm trying to say is, yes, it's, it's, you want, we want all of Christ and he wants to give all of him to us. So when I say knowing peace in a shaking world, what I'm saying is if you know peace in a shaking world, you'll know joy. You'll know self-control. You'll know faithfulness. You'll know kindness. You'll know compassion. You'll know grace. You'll know truth. You'll know all of that because you'll know him. So even the title of the course is a bit of a misnomer. Go ahead. I just, uh, it throws me, um, because there's no, when you understand that that's what you have within you by eating this way, you can't say, oh, if you don't know my situation, mm. so I, you know, I mm. can't always be gracious, mm. because, I, because mm. it's in you, mm. so you have no excuse. Mm. But even when you're thinking about even when you think about it, Rosie, it's not even so much that we're left with no excuse, although that's true. But it's like, take it away from guilt and worry and shame and all of that, about what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Take it from there just for a minute and ask yourself, do you think Christ will be enough? Do you think he'll be enough for you? Do you think... Exactly. So this is... Exactly. So this is what we're saying. There's no situation in your life he's not enough for. But you must feast on him, yeah. And he's enough for everything. He's enough for everything. But you have to feast on him. So now think about how has God arranged for us to feast on Christ? Through his word, his word by his spirit. What is the word of God? According to Jesus, when Jesus said, when he, Satan comes to him and says, uh, you must be hungry. You've not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. What does Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. This is the way that you eat Christ. By his spirit, of course. I'm not separating the word and the spirit. Christ is the spirit. The, the word is the spirit. It's all the same. This is the way. But it's not even just knowing this. Because you see, you could say you know this. You, Satan knows this. So what must you do? Experience it. You've got to trust it. You've got to believe it. What else? If you really believe this is the bread of life, this is Christ, yes. And else, and else, and else, and else. Tell, really, really, if you really think... This, yes, that's good, that's good, but I'm talking, just talk about yourself. You must enjoy it. It should be like your favorite food. It should be like chocolate. It should be, well, Sue's looking at me now. I mean, chocolate maybe is not her favorite food at the moment. It's, it's probably peppermint tea or something, but you know, it, it should be that. This should be joy. Would be joy, not should. Would be joy if you really believe this is the way that you take Christ in. I don't mean, of course you have his spirit. You know what I mean. If you really believe that, it will be joy to you. Physically, literally, leapt in 
Yeah, there you go. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Christian. That's exactly it. Job says, I have treasured the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. I have treasured the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. And that's what you're describing. You're describing that joy that comes when you can feast on this. Um, so, Jesus didn't come in the world to, to give bread. He came to be bread. Be bread. And there is a time coming when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, when we will have new glorious bodies, when nothing wrong, nothing will go wrong with us. We'll be glorious for eternity. But that day is not now. That day is not now. So we have to live in decaying physical bodies on a decaying physical planet. That's the reality. We have to live in these bodies, in, on this planet. But we have to learn to live in those bodies, on this planet, with the one who is life. Who is life. And that is the... Yeah. But it's learning to do it, learning to live, learning to feast on Christ in the midst of a physical decaying body on a planet that is decaying. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about the um, all, all creation groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. There is a day when we will be revealed in all our glory. Um, but until then, Jesus went to great lengths to tell us that we have this life already that we have the life that can know peace and joy and all of those things already. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 35 to 39, Paul picks it up and he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Look at what he says. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why not? Why is he convinced of that? Exactly, because you've eaten his flesh and drunk his blood and he is now a part of you. You cannot be separated from this God. Now, going back to uh, John chapter 6 and Matthew. In Matthew, in John, John doesn't record here um, Jesus thinking uh, when they go off in the boat and Jesus goes up on, on his own, uh, John 6, verse 15, what it says is that they wanted to make him king. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And then it says, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. But in Matthew and in Mark, you get a fuller description of what happens. Matthew 14 verse um, 23, Matthew 14, verse 23. After he had sent the crowds away, 
Um, well, let's, let's we'll start verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. And Mark chapter 6, 46 to 48 will tell you that's, um, that's what's happening. Now, I want, to, I want you to really think, because um, I want to make a connection here. Up until verse 15... Jesus has shown that he is the provider. He is the bread of life. They don't understand it yet. They think that he's just given them bread. But he has shown that he is the bread of life. But then what does he do with the disciples? Because it's only the disciples that the rest of this, this section deals with. It's not taught, The crowds won't ever know about this walking on the water. They don't know about this. All that happens is that he sends the disciples off in the boat, he tells the crowd to go away, and then, well, not in those words, but, and then he goes up to the mountain alone. So what's the picture here? They haven't got him around physically, exactly. He's not in the boat with them. Who's done that? No. He's done that. He sent them off in the boat. He... Yeah, no, he sent them off in the boat alone. He's gone up to the mountain to pray. He's just fed 5,000 people with 12 baskets left over for the um, disciples. So he's trying to tell them he's the bread of life. Um, he sort of explained that to them, sends the crowd away. You go in the boat and I'm going off to pray. Okay, what's happened with us? He's up the mountain praying. Where are you? You're in the boat. What's going on around you? Storms are going on around you. What do you know about Jesus? You don't fully understand it always, but what has he just told you about himself? I'm the bread of life. I'm the manna that comes down from heaven. So you know Jesus is the bread of life, but he's put you in the boat on the sea on your own. <laughs> well, you know... He's on the mountain. In a way, he's on the mountain praying. Did he know the storm was coming? Yes. yes. Of course he knew the storm was coming. Why didn't he stay with them? Because he wanted to teach them something. He wanted to teach them and through them us. He wanted to teach us something. So the business of us now, the business of a disciple, is to find out what is it that Jesus wants to show me through this whole um, episode. Um, what do you think he was preparing them for? Let's say that, start with that. What do, what do you think Jesus might have been preparing with them? Trials, storms that come out of nowhere that they cannot do anything about and that will cause them to fear, that will cause them to fear. That's what happens here. They get afraid. They get afraid. So he's gone off to pray. He knows, what's going to, he knows what's coming. He's aware that they're going to be afraid. He knew that they still didn't fully understand everything about him because he's had to, at the end of the chapter, he'll go on and tell them more, even more about himself. Um, they, he, they still lacked a certain level of faith, but, but, but he is going to increase their understanding of him. Where are you today? 
you're in the boat. Do you know everything about Christ? No, you don't. Do you understand about everything that is going on in your world? No, you don't. Do you get afraid? Yes, you do. Does any of that stop Jesus coming to you? No, it doesn't. Does any of it stop him praying for you? No, it doesn't. You can be sure that Jesus was praying for them on the boat. How can you be sure of that? Because he was up the mountain praying, but also because we know what he's doing now. What's he doing now? Interceding for us. Interceding for us. Every moment of every day, Jesus is praying for us. I mean, it blows my mind to understand that. So it doesn't matter how little faith you have. It doesn't matter how much you understand. It doesn't matter how big the storm or how high the waves. It only matters that you have partaken of Jesus Christ, that he will come to you. I mean, it's... Yeah. So, what does Jesus know about the storm then? I mean, what, when the storm comes, who is that used by? You started with that. It's used by the enemy. Why? What, why will the enemy use the storm? It will make them fearful and mistrust. It will start to chip away at their faith. If you're really God and you can really do this, why am I in this storm? If you really know that the storm is coming... Why am I here on my own? Exactly, that's what I'm saying. So what Jesus knows, not only is the storm coming, but how the enemy will use it and cause them to be afraid. You would think, actually, why would they be afraid? He's just fed 5,000 people. I mean, how, how, why would they be afraid? But they are, because we are affected by our circumstances all the time. Sorry, Maureen, go on. What were you going to say? Oh, because we are affected by the things that happen to us all the time. Because we're human. So, um, what does Jesus... Well, actually, let's think about Job. What was Satan's attack on Job about? What did he want Job to do? To deny God. He wanted him to deny God. Move to Luke 22. Luke chapter 22. 31 to 32. Luke 20. Luke 22... 31 to 32. Yeah. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What does Jesus know about all of the difficulties and trials and storms in our life? that Satan will try to use them against you and against God. But what is Jesus telling Peter? I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. Satan wants to destroy your faith, and he doesn't care how he does it. He will actually get you. He doesn't mind if you live to be 150 in perfect health, if he can get you away from Jesus. He doesn't mind if he makes you really wealthy, if you don't have a single care in your life. That will please him, actually, because then you don't need Christ. 
So we have to be really aware that storms come. You know, depending on what sort of Christian you are, you'll go from God sent the storm because he's teaching me something to Satan sent the storm because he's trying to get me. Well, whoever knows the answer to that? God is sovereign over it all. But can you really say that it's either God's sent this for a discipline or Satan's using it for... Exactly, exactly. Thank you. Exactly. Does it matter how it's come? No, it doesn't. Does it matter what you do in the storm? Yes, it does. Go ahead. Yes, definitely. But we have whole portions of the church that say you shouldn't have anything bad happen to you. That's the enemy. Or, or it's not the enemy, it's God disciplining you because you've been a bad Christian. Do you see what I mean? So I think that that level is impossible to understand. So what is the only thing that does matter? How we respond to the trial in our life. How do we respond? And how do you respond? Glorifying God. Yes. No. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you, Rosie. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's a really good point. Yeah. 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 What is God's purpose <coughs> for your life? I know, I know glorifying God, but that's, that's the, the overall big answer. It's always my answer. But underneath that, what's his purpose? Come to him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, all good. His purpose for your life is victory. Victory, that is his purpose for your life. That you would be victorious over all the situations and circumstances of your life. He is, Jesus is praying for that victory. What does it, Paul say in... Um, Romans 8, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Victory, conquering, overcoming victory is what God wants for you. How will you conquer, overcome, how will you be victorious in the trials and situations of your life? By trusting Jesus. Yeah, by trusting Jesus. And take that a bit further. Yeah, reading his word, yeah, yeah, yeah. Joy, joy, yeah. Yes, definitely. How will you be? Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's it. That's it. I'm not talking about happy, clappy, happiness and everybody be happy when bad things happen. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking even about uh, being able to describe what you feel as joy because some things are too hard. You can't describe them as joy. It's not joy. It's horrible. But what I am talking about is continuing to draw near to God. Continuing to draw near to God. That is the response, the only thing that you can do. When things are going wrong around you, sometimes you can't feel joy. I mean, that's ridiculous to say we can feel joy. We're still in a physical human body, and feeling joy is not always the first thing. But we can, all of us, no matter the circumstance, draw near to God. James will say it. 
resist the devil. Draw near to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. That is the way that we respond. And that, in the end, is the way we overwhelmingly conquer. Because the closer you get to God, the more able you are to experience the reality of who he is. Okay, so let's go back to uh, John chapter 6. Because when are you most likely to call out for God? Draw near to God. When are you most likely to... Because when you're in a storm. Exactly. So now go back. Now go back to John chapter 6. He's just fed the 5,000. There was more than enough left over for them. They didn't learn that lesson. They didn't learn that lesson. So they're in the boat. He's put them in the boat. He knows the storm is coming. He's praying for them. And... um, uh, and so he's going to come to them when they're afraid. John 16, 16, sorry, John 6, 16. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. And they were frightened. Why are they frightened? <laughs> No, you don't see that every day. And they still haven't quite got it about Jesus. John 6, verse 16. So they still haven't quite got it. Um, we, we won't read all the way down. Again. Well, maybe I'll read. Yeah, I will. Um, but he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What happened when Jesus got into the boat? They were safe. Yes, there's another miracle because they've arrived. Where have they arrived? It doesn't really matter because he's with them. When Christ is with you, you can be anywhere, but you've arrived. Do you see what I mean? You've arrived. They could have been on the sea, but it would have been calm. They could have been at the land and got off the boat, which is what they did. But it doesn't matter because when Christ is with you, you've arrived. You've arrived. Think about all of that, you know, all this FOMO and, you know, fear of missing out and fear of this and fear of that that is besetting this generation. Fear of, you know, not being the in crowd, fear of not being with the right people, fear of whatever, fear of this, fear of that, you know, peer pressure. Yeah. What can we absolutely know for sure? Jesus is with me. I've arrived. I've arrived at the only place that matters. Um, Okay, so we're in the middle of um, John chapter 6, these few verses, and there is no other mention in in the entire chapter, which is 71 verses long. There is no other mention of this episode of Jesus walking on the water to the boat and getting them back. I mean, don't you think that's a bit odd? That there's no other mention? No, this is just it. In John chapter 6... 71 verses, all of the rest of the chapter, apart from these five or six, is devoted to the feeding of the 5,000 and the understanding of that chapter. Okay, so why has John included this miracle in here? Why didn't he just leave it out? Yes, true, true, true. Yeah. 
Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. But I think there's something else. Yeah. All these are really good. But I think there must be something in this miracle that explains the feeding of the 5,000. Why has John put it here in the middle of this chapter? Why? Why has he put it in this order? There must be something about that miracle of Jesus coming to them in the boat that explains something about him being the bread of life. Yeah? Yeah? So what... Yeah, okay, so tell me then. Yeah. Who's this miracle for? You touched on it, Julie. This, this walking on the water, who's it for? It's for the 12, it's for the disciples, it's for people who have chosen to follow Jesus, for him. So they're disciples. So this miracle is for us. It's for us. It's not for the crowds. It's not for, because most people know about Jesus feeding the 5,000. So it's not for those, it's for us. Exactly. Yeah. So what is it then? There's nothing that's beyond his control. Yeah. But there's something that amplifies or underlines the feeding of the 5,000 in this. What happened at the end of the feeding of the 5,000? There are 12 baskets left over. How many disciples were there? 12. Why do you think that he's left the 12 baskets, had the 12 baskets left over? Why wasn't it just exactly enough? <coughs> exactly, because they're going to take out the bread of life. And so what's he showing them? When he's fed 5,000, there are 12 baskets left over, one for each of them. He why do you think he's trying to show them? I know it's difficult because you, it's my mind. Well, I want you to connect it with the walking on the water and the storm. Yeah. Don't you think what he's saying is, when you have given out as much as you can give, when you are going out with my bread of life and you feel like you have done and you have done and you can't give any more, you can't serve any more, you can't do this, I will always take care of you. I will always be enough, more than enough for you. For you, the disciple. You are the one who's going to take the bread of life out. And that's going to be hard. And you're going to have to serve other people. And they're not always going to want to be served. And they won't want your bread of life. And you will give and give and give and give until you can give no more. And you will be wondering, how are you going to cope with this? And what Jesus is saying, I think, in these 12 baskets is, I will always be more than enough for you. I will always be. Yeah. And that almost is the same. Yeah. 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 Yes. 
Mm. Yeah. <coughs> because there's something else they need to know. There's something else they need to know. So he's, if you'll pour out your life for me, and this connects with what I started with in the beginning, if you will pour out your life for Jesus, he will be poured out for you. He will give you more than enough to cover what you give out to other people. I think that's definitely, the more you satisfy others, the more he will be your satisfaction. The more you give your life for others, the more I will be life for you. It's like you are never going to lose out by giving yourself to others for the sake of Christ. He will always fill up the reservoir, if you like. So now take that picture. I'm always going to be enough for you. I'm going to be more than enough. And take it into the storm. Here they are in a storm, dead of night, without Jesus, right after a miracle whose point was, I will always be enough for you. Right? So he's fed the 5,000. They didn't get it. He's got 12 baskets left over for, for the disciples, which I think is actually the main point of that, um, of that miracle. I will always be more than enough for you when you take out the bread of life to people. But now they've seen that. They haven't got it. They're in the boat. They're in the storm. Um, Jesus is trying to let them know that um, right after a miracle, well, if they feed on him, he's the bread of life, but now their life's in danger. That's what's going to happen to you when you take out the bread of life. You are going to often feel like your life is in danger. Sue was talking about these Christians in India and um, Africa. Their lives are in danger. That was, the, the, that was the case for the early church. Their lives were in danger. Yes, it is, but that's what I mean. That's Their lives were in danger. So what does he want to tell them? Because at the moment, they've got no clue about that. They don't know. So, because um, when he comes to them on the boat, the whole point could be, oh, look, not only can he make food out of five loaves and a few fish and feed 5,000, he can also calm the storm. Wow, look at this God. He's amazing. He can, But that's not the point. It is a point, but not the point. So what's the the point? Yes. Yes. What's the... That's true. But what's the point? This is for the disciples. The disciples. He will always be there. He will always be near to you. He will always be there for you. He will always come to you in the storm. You will not have to fight your way out of that storm to find Jesus. He will come to you. You're incapable of fighting your way out of that storm. He will come to you. Look at, it's, look at Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 3. See, this is what Jesus is doing in these chapters. John chapter 6. John is recording these things, he said, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing, you might have life in his name. And now he's trying to show us what that life is like for a disciple. But you can't just be someone who's called a Christian. You have to be a disciple who is willing to go out and serve people with this bread of life. 
and the promise is made to you, there will be baskets and baskets of life left over for you. And I will always come to you in your storm. You will never, ever, ever have to be alone in your storm. Isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, praise God. <laughs> praise God. Doesn't it? I think it's just like 12, one for each, and there's more than enough. And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Isaiah 43. Verse 1 to 3. But now, thus says the Lord your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I am your Saviour. I have redeemed you. When you go through the river, I will be with you. When you pass through the fire, you will not be scorched. These are promises that Jesus is, is actually laying out for the disciples in the New Testament. I will be more than enough for you. And I will always come to you. We live this side of the cross. We live now knowing these things. We've got all this written down. Those disciples did not know this. This is all being lived out in front of them. They, were, they had to get in the boat. Jesus told them, get in the boat and go to the other side. And when they got in the boat, the storm started. They can come up really easily on the Sea of Galilee, apparently. So you, they got on the boat. They went off to go to the other side. They were doing what they were told. Doing what they were told. Think about your life. Think about your living for Christ. And then think about why is it that certain things happen to you when you are doing what you're supposed to do when you are living for Christ, when you are making decisions for him, why do bad things happen to people who are living for Christ? We don't always know, but one thing we do know is that Christ is there with us all of the time. They were doing what they were supposed to do. It is. Yeah, it is. It is. No, we shouldn't. Okay, so... What, how are we going to put it into a few sentences at the end? What would you say about, uh, about Jesus giving them 12 baskets of bread left over? What's he telling them? I mean, use them. I, I will always be enough. They'll always be. But do you think he might be saying, I never run out? I never run out. I never, ever, ever run out. That's what abundant life means. Life abundant means life that never runs out. It never runs out. Yeah. Mm. 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 
I don't know. It's very interesting because he doesn't say what they did with it, actually. Did they take it on the boat? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I, yeah, it doesn't say what they did with it. So, I am... I never run out. He is the I am, isn't he? He's the I am. In... Um, uh, I can't remember if it's John 6 or John... Yeah, it is, but I mean, there's a one particular place. Maybe it's John 8. It's John 8, yeah. So he's going to later on say, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So he's in the process of telling them that he's God and that um, he's... John 8, 8, 50... Yeah, and then at the, again at 58. Um, so I am always enough. I'm the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. I never, ever, ever run out. There's no finish to me. There's no end to the provision that I will be for you. Um, I give myself to you. That's what he's saying. I'm giving myself to you. I am the bread of life. And I'm giving myself to you. And I will be your personal bread. Not just the bread of the whole world. I will be your personal sustenance. And now, what's the next thing? Connecting that in the dark, in the storm, in the trial and the trouble and the tribulation, I will be with you. Just as I am the bread of life, I am part of your body, part of who you're, part of your soul. I am. You are in me, and I am in you. I will walk on water to be with you. I love that. Don't you love that? I will walk on water to be with you. So, what did they do? They took him into the boat with joy. And where were they? They were immediately where they should be. He was their safe place. He was their refuge. He was their home. He was their arrival. When you take me into your boat, Jesus is saying to us, you will immediately be in your safe place. Hmm. Any questions? (laughs) Praise God for it. Praise God for it. Father, thank you. Your word is amazing. You are amazing, Lord. Thank you that thank you that you show us these things. Thank you that you've showed me. I expect I've read this somewhere or picked it up somewhere, Lord. Thank you. Thank you that you amplify it and show us what it is and what it means. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are praying for us right now, that you are interceding for us at the right hand of the throne of God. And thank you that you will walk on water to be with us that you have made it possible for us to be in your presence all the time. Help us now, Lord, as we go into this new study. Help us to really experience you, the God who is peace. Help us to to know you better and to love you more and to want to serve you better. And, And really, Lord, I pray that you would really give us an understanding of your power and your might and your great overcoming victory that we would really understand that in you, Christ Jesus, we are victorious 
and we are blessed and we are loved and oh Father I just pray that we would understand all of those things that you might be glorified and that our joy might be made full so I thank you Lord for all that you have done and I praise you in Jesus name Amen